Welcome to the Women's Wellbeing Academy podcast, brought to you by the University of New South Wales, Sydney. This series explores the impact of COVID-19 on various aspects of women's health and wellbeing. My name is Professor Bill Ledger, and I'm Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at the Royal Hospital for Women and at the University of New South Wales. My task today is to introduce Associate Professor Adi Torda, who's Associate Dean of Education and Innovation in the Faculty of Medicine at UNSW and also the UNSW Gender Co-Champion. The Gender Champion role sits within the Division of Equity, Diversity and Inclusivity and is about promoting equity and inclusivity in the workplace. Adi is also an infectious diseases physician who is still in clinical practice. Over the last few years, she's developed her passion for medical education and inclusive leadership within the Faculty of Medicine and has developed a wide range of innovations for students within the faculty, providing mentorship for students, academics, and other women in medicine, and is also patron of the Women in Medicine Scheme at Prince of Wales Hospital, where she's coordinated and run a program to support and empower early to mid-career women in medicine. And he's worked in frontline healthcare all her life and has also raised four children, and so is therefore expert and acutely aware of the juggling and the intense issues that have arisen in this area as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So Adi, welcome to the podcast. And I think maybe the first question or comment we should explore is, can you actually estimate the percentage of frontline healthcare workers who are female? Thanks, Bill. And thank you for that lovely introduction. Look, it varies a little bit from country to country, but the general number that's thrown around is that about 70% of the world's healthcare workers are women. In China, in the response to the COVID pandemic, it was thought to be even higher. It was put at about 85% of the frontline healthcare workers being women. And that includes all healthcare workers. Obviously, it's slightly lower for doctors and it's slightly higher for nurses. It's thought to be about 85% nurses are female. That's really helpful. Thank you. And leading on from, from that, many of us, Adi, men and women, doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals are all anxious about not only the risk of becoming sick with COVID-19 ourselves, but most of us in work would be in the younger age group below 65, but also mm-hmm. the risk of taking infection home and infecting our families. Many will be caring for elderly relatives. And how, how would you suggest people best deal with this? Yeah. Look, it's really hard. And as you've said, the healthcare workforce includes not only doctors and nurses, but also allied health professionals, also all the other professional and supportive staff within the hospital. So it's absolutely huge. And as you've also alluded to, the fact is that many people, probably even more women, are the primary caregivers for other people in their families. So often they are still the primary caregivers for children, either young, school-aged, or even university-aged, still living at home, but also their um, parents. So often parents live with them, not so much in Australia, but globally, for sure, in the number of countries families are extended. So Women who work in frontline healthcare during the current situation risk not only giving it to their young ones, even though we know from a lot of statistics that we can go into later if you want, that 
kids don't tend to be predominantly infected with this current um, virus, but elderly do. And elderly have a much higher rate of severe illness and mortality if they are infected. So it's a huge issue not being able to care for and not even being able to see elderly relatives. It's had a huge impact on everybody that I know over the past two months. And Addie, very many sad stories going on from that. And, and I wonder if you could comment on your reading of the risk of infection to another individual if we ourselves are totally asymptomatic, because that, I think, is a cause of, for concern in this context. Yeah, and I think that the, the problem that most people have is understanding the data as it comes out and appreciating that even if we have two months of data, there's such a huge lag time that that data might not be completely accurate. So if we think about the fact that the average incubation period is about five and a bit days, but of course it can be as little as two days, probably up to about 14 days, perhaps even longer in a very small number of people. So that's why we have the current two week as our overall incubation period. So if we have that as what we think, then we have people going to be diagnosed and then we have the illness itself playing out. And most people who get really sick often get really sick during the second or third week of their illness. So all those statistics that we have really just play out, you know, only one or two or three evolutions of contact. So we, there's a still a lot we don't know, but we do know that people can really be contagious, infectious, uh, in the one to two days before they become unwell. So those are what we're aiming to try and catch at the moment in terms of looking at exposure. So if you think about the um, government app that they're asking everybody to download at the moment, that's what it's going to look at. So if they have a case, they're going to look at all the people who are in contact with that person for the 24, maybe 48 hours, but really the 24 hours beforehand. So that's the bulk of the pre-symptomatic infectious period but of course there are some people who won't even get unwell with this illness and they'll be infectious for a small period of time and there are people who so there is some asymptomatic carriage and transmission but that's really hard to document probably Australia has one of the best chances of being able to document that because of our policy of really widespread testing although still we've only been testing symptomatics mainly not asymptomatic so and still until anywhere in the world can get to a place where they're testing a huge number of asymptomatics we're not going to know about the infectivity of asymptomatics if that makes any sense no it absolutely does and i think it does hit home the common sense of australia's policy of, of, of easy access to testing and also perhaps we would encourage people to download the government app and to use that system because unless enough of us do, it's not going to be effective, I don't think, Addy. Is that, is that how you see it? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, people do have concerns about privacy, but that's not the point of the app. And there are so many people working on separating those issues and making sure that privacy isn't compromised. Really, what it's trying to do is document cases and then using your digital, your Bluetooth footprint, if you like, look at those people who... Um, on the phone app you had more than 15 minutes contact with in the 24 hours before you became unwell that allows people to be contact traced it allows them to be isolated tested whatever needs to be done and so it's a fairly preemptive way of being able to stop the spread of 
COVID-19 pandemic, you know, in a sense. So I did to move on to the second topic that we have this, uh, today. Um, one of the other major problems for women who are working in the front line of healthcare, again, across all of the professions that work together in the healthcare environment is concerning childcare. Um, we're looking at the first day of back to school in New South Wales today, but it looks as if only a fairly small percentage of families are taking up the, op the opportunity to send their kids back to school. What's your best advice about provision of, of schooling, either at home or at work, for parents who are working and who have different ages of children, you know, from, from early all the way up to pre <laughs> How long do we have, Bill? <laughs> That's such a huge question. I think Addy is the answer to podcasts. Yeah, look, it's such a difficult thing. And I think the most difficult uh, thing about this topic is that the recommendations change so frequently and there seem to be inconsistencies everywhere and people are being quite confused by all of that. Um, I, my impression was that for the first two weeks schooling from home is being recommended and then they're going to be opening up classrooms for face-to-face -face teaching in a rolling manner. What that exact rolling manner means, um, I'm not entirely sure. So there's a few different scenarios here. We do know from the statistics and numbers that we have in Australia that kids don't seem to be the main um, incubators of this and don't, there doesn't seem to be a lot of transmission so that's quite reassuring, but numbers actually don't always help if you have to make a decision for yourself and your own kids. So a lot of people will choose to keep their children at home and try to do homeschooling as much as they can and try to keep their family unit, as it, as it were, fairly isolated with the social distancing rules in place. And if you can manage that for the next little while, especially through the next few weeks of uncertainty, you know, and that's what you feel most comfortable with. Um, you could do that and you could see how the first few weeks of opening up schools goes. But not everybody has the luxury of doing that, of course. Many people do have to go to work outside their home. And so they will probably be quite grateful when schools open back up and their, their children can go back. And of course, females tend to be the primary caregivers at home and they're working as well. So then they have to work out schedules. I mean, the good news here is that often partners are working at home as well. So I suppose it's all about working out schedules, alternating care at home, everybody just working together to get through what they need to do and really taking it a week at a time or two weeks at a time as the environment changes around us. And I think we've all worked out that we've got to be incredibly adaptable and that's all we can do. We're getting a lot of communication from our government. We're getting it daily. And I think just keep listening and keep trying to work out. And if you're confused, they now have lines that you can ring to try and ask questions directly. So I, I love that word adaptability. I think that's exactly right. That the, the position changes day by day, almost hour by hour. And we just have to be agile and, and go with it on the assumption that sooner or later life will go back pretty much to normal. Um, but that brings us nicely on to our third topic, which is about well-being um, and not only the well-being of our health workers themselves, who, as you say, are often trying to balance looking after a family, scheduling and managing homeschooling and going to work full time, often in very distressing and difficult circumstances, but also that they're trying to be responsible for the well-being of the whole family. So, so that holistic approach, maybe touch on how we might help or advise people to do the best there to look after themselves and their families in these tricky times. 
Yeah, look, it's really hard. I look back now to the beginning of this and I reckon I had insomnia for the first couple of weeks and I didn't feel like my well-being was being affected, but I just had so much going on that I couldn't sleep. And that's, you know, one of the things, one of the markers of a reduction in well-being. I think that in China, there's been some really good studies now amongst the healthcare workers that showed something like a 50% depression rate, anxiety, almost at the same rate. Insomnia, like I say, was quite common and just general distress. And there's going to be a huge amount of emotional trauma that comes out of this because particularly for healthcare workers, the level of anxiety of going to work over the last few weeks and perhaps not having access to personal protective equipment and then worrying about your own risk of infection, worrying about transmitting that to your family or to other healthcare workers or to other patients has been absolutely huge. I think people are beginning to get a little bit past that now. People have developed routines. We now have much more PPE in the country. So some of those actual real unresolvable anxieties are coming down but everybody I speak to is exhausted they're distressed they feel caged up because they can't spend much time outside you know they're finding it hard so I think you do have to worry about your self-care you do have to ensure that you are doing things like exercise every day that your diet's okay that you are doing what you can to get enough sleep and that you're practicing things like mindfulness or meditation just to slow down your mind and get control of those kind of anxieties and things that you might be feeling. I mean, the other group that I really worry about are our kids and our students, and they must be very worried about what's going on. And I think communication using age-appropriate language is really key because they pick up, just like our pets pick up, on the fact that we might be anxious or overtired or, you know, just really frustrated about what's going on. And I think a lot of us are grieving for the outside. You could see any time they open up beaches here, people just zoom out there just because I think they just want to touch base with the sand and the ocean. And I, I really understand that. And so we just have to work out ways of coping within the restrictions that we're doing. You know, having Zoom um, exercise classes, playing music with your mates um, over the internet, um, trivia quizzes. I've just been speaking to people at work about let's try and get some meetings that aren't all hard work. Let's try and make some fun meetings so that people are not just feeling totally exhausted. I don't know about you, Bill, but I'm pretty tired. <laughs> Do you know, you're absolutely right. You get this sense of, of ennui, don't you, that things just drift when there's a day without the discipline of work. It's really difficult to keep focused sometimes. And you're right, setting a schedule, making sure that we still get up at the right time I, I think putting on proper clothes, it, you know, that helps me mentally get into work mode and I can sit and work at home better. And I did just one thing, we, we had some very good advice from Ursula Sansom Daly, who's one of our clinical psychologists in the behavioural sciences unit on this topic. And she kind of said all of the things that you very sensibly put forward and also said that avoiding looking too much at the news about COVID, that mm. endlessly having it on your phone, it pops up and looking every hour or so. People seem to be kind of getting obsessed sometimes with this and it must be harmful to their mental health to be so, you know, generating anxiety so frequently over the course of a day. Yeah, it is overwhelming. And I think, you know, a week or two back, it was just so overwhelming, you know, first with Europe and then with the UK and then with the USA and the statistics 
of people needing hospitalisation and dying. They were just something that, you know, our generation have never seen anything like this. So totally mind-numbing. I think that's really good advice. Just take a small piece of news each day and then get on with something else, something more enjoyable. Exactly right. And, and I do think we need to anticipate that some kind of restriction on our social activities will be applied long term, hopefully less rigorous than it is now, but making a plan for a sustainable way of living and maintaining mental health and well-being, I think is important. This is not going to be a short term thing. Now. No, and I think, you know, there are a number of pluses um, that we haven't talked about in addition to those kind of standard things about well-being, that it's a good time to take up new hobbies like indoor hobbies. I made a quilt. I've never made a quilt before in my entire life. That was my Easter project um, to try and stop myself from working every single day and do something slightly relaxing that I could do from home. The other thing is that, you know, families are bonding. People are just beginning to talk again or do things within their family units. I know a number of fathers who have not been the primary caregivers because, you know, they've left early, gone to work for 12 hours, come back. They're enjoying spending time at home with their kids. They're enjoying cooking meals together with their kids and even getting involved in some creative ways to deliver some of um you know the educational stuff and i know that's a big stereotype between male and female roles but you know a number of my friends who have worked that way for years are actually enjoying the these aspects of the enforced change on their life so there are opportunities to actually really um make an effort whereas before we just took things like spending time with your kids for granted or communicating with your relatives now because you can't go and see your relatives people are making extravagant videos and sending them to them so there are some really lovely and creative approaches that you can use to try and circumvent um you know the bad aspects of what these restrictions have imposed on us and Adi, i wonder if you would agree with me that i feel that when we are out and about obviously maintaining our distancing but people are more civil with each other just out in the community you know out when we're doing our shopping or doing our exercise people seem more willing to, to stop stand apart but have a brief catch up and just that and even people driving on the roads are, are more forgiving and you know less likely to hoot at people than they than they were before this happened yeah i think they are i live near a park and i go down there almost every day and we all social distance but you know people are still going oh what kind of dog is that and mm. the kids are playing with each other or, you know the families of kids are playing ball games and stuff together and you can see that there is this sense of community that we haven't necessarily always taken the time to appreciate so i agree with you it's lovely yeah bringing people together in adversity it's been written up many times from other scenarios where life has gone bad on a whole country or a whole nation and i, I think we're seeing that again so i think the, the kind of fourth topic would be to to focus in a little more on, on self-care for mm. women who are frontline healthcare workers again looking across that whole broad spectrum any any advice you could give to our healthcare workers in this time yes i think it's a hard well the situation currently in Australia is, is quite different to most other countries. So if you look at how things are going in Australia, we don't have a huge number of cases at the moment. We don't have a, a huge number of people having to go into quarantine or remove themselves from their families, which is amazing. And that's totally different to the situation in places where 
every day people have contact with cases in healthcare and they're having to actually build living quarters close to the hospitals or close to the universities so that nurses and doctors and other healthcare workers can physically remove themselves from um, their families and reduce risk. So in their, those kinds of environments, the, the self-care would be really difficult. Um, I don't think we have that here, but I think, like I said, if you're working in frontline healthcare, you still need to make sure that you eat okay and that you do some exercise as well as spending time with your family and getting enough sleep. Because I know from my own personal habits and all the other healthcare workers, I know that it's really easy to skip meals and it's really easy to not get enough sleep and think you'll be okay. And you'll be okay for a while, but ultimately you probably will get a huge, a larger amount of that emotional trauma that comes from this kind of experience. And it's almost like another form of presenteeism that many healthcare workers just feel they've got to keep going, they've got to do longer hours, they've got to do longer shifts. And we do that because we can and we feel vital, but it's really in the long term not the best thing to do. So I think um, ask for help if you need it. Look up the resources available to you. There's a huge amount of mental health resources now available online that are specific to dealing with this COVID pandemic. And I think they go through things like that. Uh, where you might just think that's just me, I can survive on four or five hours of sleep, I'll be fine, I only need one meal a day. You probably won't be fine if you do that every day for two or three weeks. You probably need to put into your routine three afternoons a week or mornings or something, even if you have to get up at 5.15 to do an hour's exercise before you go to work, you should schedule it in. I think, as you say, things will change, but they won't change dramatically really quickly. And so I think you really have to check in that your routine is going to keep you going in the long term. Resilience is important and I think we're all learning a lot about personal resilience and those skills that we develop now will actually benefit us long term. And I think just debriefing appropriately with your friends and your loved ones because I think that's going to be really important as well at this present time. Mm, yes, I, I really do think it's an important concept of sharing the burden and, and having mm. people that are close to us, loved ones we can share and and, and help to to manage the emotional burden and and i'm sure Ada, you join me in saying how proud we are of the colleagues with whom we work in healthcare. my own colleagues doctors nurses midwives all of the allied professionals here at the royal hospital for women are doing a fantastic job i see them every day everyone still smiles at each other they do pass the time of day within the right distancing criteria and just have a sense of, of, of carrying the burden together and not being too isolated so let's maybe complete the podcast by saying that we just advise everyone to look after themselves in order to help them look after others because yeah. we need all these people. And if, if they all fall, fall through the cracks because they're too exhausted, that's not going to keep the healthcare system going. Yeah, I think, you know, things I've been thinking about each day is send three people virtual hugs and, um, you know, just send three people uh, a message of gratitude pass that around you know things like that make a huge difference when you know that you're being appreciated by somebody so as you say share your burden and just those people who are making 
just day after day commitments to this and, and, you know, may feel a little bit worn out, let them know that you really appreciate and can see what they're doing. Addy, that's a lovely message to finish on. Thank you so much, Associate Professor Addy Torda, for participating in our podcast. Uh, my Bye. pleasure. Nice to speak with you, Bill. Bye. Bye-bye. For more information about this podcast, our guests and upcoming episodes, please visit the UNSW Equity, Diversity and Inclusion website.